Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to, conf- to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even you, even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, and make it be for us the word of life that we might be people of life. And now, God, hide me behind your cross that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have had the incredible opportunity to be the passer of some amazing people. I mean, it's one of, the, one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that you get to know some of the greatest people to, to have ever lived. And I met, I mean, I've, I've, I've met so many incredible people, but there is one that stands probably above everyone else. And his name was Jim Hebert. I wish all of you would have gotten to know Jim Hebert. He was an, an incredible, an incredible person. Jim was raised as, uh, in the Mennonite church. Um, he was um, a, a very, very faithful, faithful man. He went to, um, w- went to, went to school and grew up, again, a, just an incredibly faithful man. And he married the love of his life, Lois. And they were married for many, many years. Jim had been instrumental in starting a ministry in Mexico uh, and really, um, well, he served on the board of directors for this school for 50 years. They, it developed into a school. It developed really into a, into a Bible college. And they had, uh, they had a number of students. I believe they had well over 100 students every year on their campus there in Mexico. Jim was, uh, was a president of that board multiple times. And he was instrumental in receiving all of the funds that were necessary to, to build this very large campus. There were dormitories there. There were multiple classrooms there. He prided, uh, it was one of the prides of his life was that school that he had helped found uh, there in Mexico. And uh, he also, he was a very, very successful businessman. He was a trainer for the Dale Carnegie Institute. And many of you may be too young to remember Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie wrote a book that was entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it was um, really that program was, was for business people, but it really was based upon Christian principles. And it really was mainly about relationships and how to build relationships with others. Dale Carnegie, his, uh, his conviction was that if people can learn how to truly 
truly build friendships and relationships, well, then they will be, they'll be successful. And so Jim was a trainer for the Dale Carnegie Institute for years and years and years. And if you've ever met anyone who's gone through a Dale Carnegie uh, course, you, will, you, have, you have met some of the friendliest people that you will ever, ever know. Uh, I, became, I became Jim's pastor when I, was, um, when I became the pastor of that church. And of all of the people that have been in churches that I've pastored, Jim was my absolute biggest cheerleader I ever had. Now, he didn't, he didn't always agree with everything that I did as a pastor. In fact, when I was at that church, we started a, a second worship service, and it was a contemporary worship service that had uh, contemporary and modern music, and Jim was, uh, he, he was old school when it came to music. Uh, nothing but the organ and the piano and nothing but gospel music. And he wasn't real excited about that worship service, but but he began to see the fruits of that, and he began to see that we began to reach lots of people who had never been in church before. And, and we had a number of people who joined on profession of faith, and they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so he became, he became a fan of that worship service, although he never attended because he didn't like guitar music and he didn't like drums in worship, but he was an incredible supporter of, of that ministry, and he was, he, was a, he was an amazing cheerleader of mine. And I absolutely fell in love with Jim Hebert. Jim was so, so incredible to uh, make sure that our children, our, when our children were young, he, would, uh, he and Lois would always invite them over to their house. And um, I believe our son still has some toys that Jim helped him repair. Uh, and he was, just, he was just an incredible, incredible man. Jim was diagnosed with cancer. Um, he was pretty healthy, uh, had never, never drank alcohol in his life, had never smoked a bit in his life. He had a, he had a healthy lifestyle, but he was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a very aggressive form of cancer. And he knew what the future lay in store for him. He was not, he was not concerned about himself. He knew, I mean, he was such an incredible person of faith. He knew what was going to happen to him. He was very concerned about his wife, Lois. Uh, Lois, he, he, was, he was the head of that household, no doubt, and uh, he drove the car, and he balanced the checkbook, and he did, he did all of the things that, uh, that, that, a, that a husband was supposed to do in that generation of families, and, and so he was very concerned about Lois, and I went to see him multiple times at his house. I can't tell you how many times I was there. That if they would have a repair person there. Uh, Jim was always witnessing to them. And I saw him invite literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people to church. He was one of the big reasons. He was one of the main reasons that, that church grew because of his, his efforts at evangelizing others. So I, I had been, I'd been to see him multiple times in the, in the hospital. And um, I had talked to Lois uh, the day before. And she said Jim was not doing, not doing well. And it likely was coming to the end for him. And so... Um, I made it a point that I would, I would go to the hospital the next day. And um, I got to the hospital as early as I could the next day. And I walked in the room. And uh, Lois greeted me. And she and Jim had been visiting just a bit. He, he was still able to communicate some. And she was certainly communicating with him. And um, as I walked into the room, she greeted me with a, a warm hug, as only, as only Lois Hebert can hug. I've never had someone hug me like Lois Hebert could. And she looked over at Jim, and she said, Jim, the pastor's here. 
And the moment that I walked in was the moment that he died. I have been in the room multiple times when people have died. I have presided over 122 funerals. I've been to at least 50 more, 50 more funerals. I was friends, I've been friends with funeral home directors in every community that I've been in. I have buried matriarchs and patriarchs of churches that I've pastored. I've buried unbelievers. I have buried my own family members. I have buried people who have committed suicides and murder victims. And uh, I have presided over the funeral of an entire family of four and a neighbor girl. I have presided over funerals of tragic deaths like car accidents and heart attacks and even victims of arson. I've presided over the funerals of children and teenagers and infants. One of my, the funeral of one of my very best friends in this last year and also even of an infant nephew. I didn't know how to handle those deaths when I was first started out. I had no idea how to do it. I remember one of the very first funerals that I, uh, that I presided over was, a, was an older gentleman in this community, and um, he had attended church a few times, and in my two years at this small little church, he, he came a couple of times, um, but um, I knew that he needed to be visited. Uh, he was incredibly lonely, and uh, he had a lot, a lot of issues. He, he, had, he had been divorced, and he was... Uh, estranged from his children. He had no one. He had absolutely no one other than this small Methodist church that had reached out to him. And he wasn't able to get out of his house much. And so I would go, um, I would go visit him um, once a month or so just to give him some company. And um, one day I, I received a phone call and, um, from a funeral home director and they had said this gentleman had died and they said, he's, getting, he's going to be cremated, and uh, his family has said to go ahead and cremate him. And I said, oh, okay, well, so what do I need to do by way of a worship service or a funeral service? They said, oh, we're, they're not going to have a funeral service. I said, well, I mean, can I come see him? And they said, well, I mean, if you get here in the next 15 minutes, I live 45 minutes away. I didn't know, I mean, I, I never saw this man again. I didn't have the closure of of being able to, to grieve over, over his body. I didn't have the closure of having some final goodbye to him. I was very, very new in ministry. I had no idea, had no idea how to do all of this. I learned how to compartmentalize things. And so, um, you know, I had once, one day I had two funeral services, <laughs> two, and both of them were leaders in different churches that I was pastoring. I just simply compartmentalized it. And then, and then I began to realize that I couldn't just compartmentalize it and compartmentalize my grief. No, I really had, I really had to deal with my grief. And so I learned how to, how to deal with that grief in times that were not when I was leading. And many, many people have asked, um, especially when it's a, a dear saint in the life of the church, Pastor, how in the world did you get, how did you make it through that funeral service, and, I, and, I've, and I've learned how to deal with my grief in, in other ways and in different times, and be able to, and the, and the best, maybe at the best of myself, is to hold it, hold it together. Recently, well, really just this past week, there was a very tragic death of a teenage boy in a 
community near my hometown. And I was in a text conversation with my family, and they, um, my, I have a, a family of a family member who's a superintendent of schools at this small community, and, and uh, we, we got in a text conversation, and, and they, I mean, one of my, one of my brother-in-laws uh, told me, he said, you're an expert in death. <laughs> and I guess I am. I mean, it's one of the blessings and one of the curses of being a pastor is that I've become an expert in death. One of the things that I've realized is that when someone dies, no matter who it is, no matter if it was an expected death or an unexpected death, when a death occurs, there are no easy answers, none at all. There are no, there are no easy answers. So we're completing this sermon series dealing with these topics in which there are no, there are no easy answers. And certainly, certainly there, are a lot of, there are a lot of easy answers that are offered You've, you've likely heard them. Well, you know, God needed another angel in heaven. Well, really, it's for the best. You never, know, you never know what would have happened. You never know, would have known what would have happened to them. Well, it was God's will. Well, at least you can have another child. Well, at least, at least you do have another child. Well, you know, he was old and he had lived a, a long and full life. Don't cry. For you see, if you cry, it shows you really don't have faith. You know, once you get past the funeral, things will get back to normal. These are the kinds of easy answers that I have heard over the past two plus decades of, of not only leading funeral services, but also walking with grieving families. Lots and lots of easy answers are offered, but I will say, I will say none of those easy answers, there's any amount of truth in them at all. There are no easy answers, often because we simply try to deny death. We try to deny death. Why do you think why do you think people, at, at, why, why, I mean, one of the, over the last 20 years, one of the fastest growing industries is the cosmetic industry, not only, not just for makeup, but also for tummy tucks and uh, push-ups here and, and uh, suctions there and, 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 and lifts here. Why do you think that is? We're, we're trying to remain young. We're trying to remain young. Even, even when someone dies, we try to deny death. We try to make it look like the person in the casket, the body in the casket, is just simply, is just simply sleeping. Haven't we said that? Oh, they just look like they're sleeping. I mean, I think one of the, one of the tragic moves in the funeral home, uh, funeral home industry is that, we, is that we go to the funeral home or we go to the cemetery and we have the, we have the cemetery service in a in a chapel that has a concrete floor and it's beautiful and nice and we're not struck with the reality of death to seeing that casket lowered in the ground. I mean, you, you know the old saying about death and taxes. I mean, there are two things that we can always be sure of and it's death and taxes. But oftentimes we just, we spend all of our lives and our culture seems to be infatuated with denying death and and trying to look past death and act as if death doesn't exist at all. There are no easy answers when it comes to death because of the finality of it all. 
But we all, we all know this. There is a finality in death. And, and there will come a day. There will come a day when those aromas from the house, they begin to fade. And there will come a day when we have to clean out the closet. And there will come a day when we have a family gathering and mom or dad isn't there. There will come a day when we have to go to that ball game when it would have been, it would have been our child's last basketball game. There's a finality to death. And there are absolutely no easy answers whatsoever. And there were no easy answers when Lazarus died. He was a dear friend of, of Jesus. This story that we find in John's Gospel is astounding. We find Jesus weeping over his friend who has died. Now, there's lots of debate on why Jesus wept. Was he weeping for Lazarus? Was he weeping for his friends? Was he weeping out of his own grief? I have no idea. But we see incredible, incredible emotion from Jesus. But here is where we find hope. Here, and only here, is where we find hope. Well, you know, you know that God will raise him again. Oh, oh, I know that, in, that, in, that, 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 there will, that there will be a day coming that he will rise again. Do you believe? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That is the only answer. The only answer that matters. And it's the only answer that gives us hope. You know, there are a lot of things that the church, and I say the church with the big C, the universal church, we've handed off to our culture. Some of it may have been taken from us, but many of it we as a church universal, we, we just simply handed it off. You know, 100 years ago, uh, there were very few opportunities for entertainment, and so people came to church for entertainment. <laughs> you wonder why the preachers used to run around and jump around and scream and yell? There's a little bit of entertainment value there. Well, now, <laughs> I mean, I mean, how, how, many, I mean, how many movies on Netflix are there? How, how many streaming services are there? People don't come to church for entertainment much anymore. It used to be that, uh, that the people would come to church to find healing. Well, certainly, I mean, I, I affirm the, the, the role of doctors and medicine. and I mean, that's where, that's where we go to, to find healing. Many of people would come to church in order to be part of something larger than themselves where there are literally thousands and thousands of organizations you can be part of that would help you to be, become part of something that's bigger than yourself. But here's what Here's what our culture, and the, here's, here's something that our world will never have an answer for, and that is death itself. Our culture has no answer and no comeback to death other than, well, that's the end. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ is the one, the only thing that gives us real hope when it comes to the death of a loved one. It's the only, he's the only thing. 
We can't put our hope and trust in our finances. We can't put our hope and trust in our culture. We can't put our hope and our trust in, uh, ultimately in our family members. We can't even put our hope and our trust in our churches. It is only in Jesus Christ. For in Christ we have salvation. And there's no other answer to death other than to find faith in Jesus Christ. So no matter who you are, It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. You must face the reality of your own mortality. That's what I'm going to say to you here in just uh, less than two weeks on Ash Wednesday. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you're going to die. But in death, there is a resurrection. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is is resurrection and life. And so if you have, if you're not a person of faith, if you've doubted before and you're not exactly sure, and maybe, maybe you've never taken really a, a step of faith at all, I would just simply ask you about death. So what's, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to to you when, when you die. Oh, there's going to be, I mean, you have, you have lots of options. There's a smorgasbord of, of, of things you can believe in. Maybe you go on and live of some other form. Maybe you come back in some other body or something. I don't know. I mean, I love life. I'm not sure I want to do this again, though. You see, I want to find true and ultimate healing and hope. And that will only come through Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Lord, many of us spend years scared, frightened that it's all going to be taken away from us. That we're going to lose it all. That we're not, not going to just wake up one morning. And some of us who are here, who are worshiping with us in the sound of my voice, some of us today, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen to us when that day finally comes. Oh, and it will come to all of us. Lord, our only hope is in you. You are our only hope, for you are resurrection and life. And even though we die, we shall live forevermore. Oh Lord, give us faith. Give us saving faith. That we might come to know you as Savior and Lord. Help us to not shrink before death, but instead help, it, help us to face it with boldness, knowing what's in store for us, knowing that your eternal arms are waiting for us as people of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.